Well, welcome to uh, Graceway Baptist Church and our Sunday School lesson. This is one we're going to present on March 20th, 2022. And we are uh, doing a series called The Miracles of Jesus. And this one is The Wedding at Cana. And for those of you who are teaching, make sure you are on the right one because we've had to do some adjustments here. But March 20th, The Wedding at Cana. We're going to be looking at John chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 12. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So go ahead and turn there with us, and we'll look at this first um, miracle that Jesus performed. And uh, in the introduction, I'm making the point here that this doesn't seem to be uh, all that grand of a start to the miracles and the ministry of Jesus if you think about it in context of the days in which they lived. This is a miracle that's performed in Cana. And uh, so what? That's the kind of town that it was. It's not something, I mean, we're used to looking at it, and we kind of know this, but anybody living in the days of Jesus might have had to uh, stopped and thought about it. It might be like um, somebody launching a presidential campaign in, I don't know, Godibo or something like that. And people would look and say, what, what in the world and why and and where is that? And they would have to look on the map. Uh, it's Cana of Galilee. Neither one of those things are very impressive. We, because of our biblical knowledge and everything, we think about Galilee and must have been a nice place and must have been a great place for Jesus to be raised, born in Judea, of course, then had to go to Egypt because of uh, Herod wanting to kill all of the male babies. And then when they can come back, then Joseph doesn't want to live in Judea because of uh, Archelaus. And so he goes to Galilee. Well, Galilee was like the, I don't know, Nowheresville, I guess, in Israel. Uh, you remember uh, one of the disciples, I think it was Nathaniel, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It just, you know, was looked down, not only the town's, but the region, and Cana wasn't really any better. And so when you uh, think about this, why didn't Jesus launch his ministry, I don't know, maybe Jerusalem, maybe even in Bethlehem. I mean, after all, it was the city of David, and he could proclaim himself to be David's um, descendant and the one who's going to take the throne, but that, that wasn't the purpose of the Lord. And so he, with a few of his disciples... At the beginning of his ministry, they are at a wedding in Cana. And so that's kind of where we uh, uh, pick up and, and look at this. And, and like I said, in our day where we think all about marketing and um, having all of the right stuff and the pizzazz and the publicity and everything, uh, this just doesn't seem like a good move. But that wasn't really what Jesus was all about, was it? He was here to do his father's will. And he was here to uh, die on the cross for our sins, not to be a big celebrity or uh, gain a big following or anything like that. He was headed uh, toward the cross. And, you know, you think about how today churches are supposed to be, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this here, cutting edge, tolerant, cool, and a reflection of society. But um, however, 
When Jesus performed his first miracle, things were different. Jesus was dependent upon um, his uh, father, and he was glorifying the Lord, glorifying the father. And that's really all that mattered to him. And so there's a difference. And that's really what we ought to do. You know, as churches and as believers, we ought to be like Christ. Remember when he was in the temple and he told his mother, did you not know I must be about my father's business? Well, that's the way he lived his life. And uh, we need to do that as well. And so many times we're more interested in what does the world think of us and what does society think of us and how do we uh, make a public presentation? How would we look in the media? How would we look on the news instead of how do we look in the eyes of God? And so uh, this is the way Jesus did it. And I might ought to add something here. Notice the difference in impact what the modern church is doing, and we have more money, we have more talent, we have more uh, technology, all of these kind of things, and yet uh, the world is just not being changed or impacted much by churches today. Now, I know that's not entirely and 100% true. There are churches that are making impact that we don't even know about and we don't see, and it'll show up later on. But at the same time, it seems like we have bigger churches than we've ever had before, and yet society is going and drifting the wrong way. And yet here's Jesus. He was at that time kind of a nobody, a no-name from of all places, Galilee, who does his first miracle at a wedding of all places in Cana in Galilee. And yet, look, we're still talking about him today. God's ways are not our ways, and we need to be careful that we don't try to impose our ways upon him. So um, John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Okay well stop right there hit the pause button. The fact that Mary was there and the fact that as we begin to read on down here, she had kind of a, I guess we would say an authoritative position. They're out of wine. You do something about it. And then telling the servants, whatever he says to you, you do it. It, it kind of gives us an idea that Mary was in charge of something here. She was a, a kind of a, uh, I don't know, an organizer or a director or whatever you might call it of the wedding. And the fact that Jesus was invited and his disciples are there with him, it gives you the idea, even though it doesn't specifically say this, it gives you the idea this was probably a family wedding, probably a relative of Mary and the Lord Jesus. And so that's why they are there and that's what's happening. Again, this is not something that would make a lot of headlines. A lot of weddings take place every day that we never hear about. And uh, a wedding in a small town in an obscure part of Israel wouldn't attract just a whole lot of attention. And it's not like the whole town was there. Maybe they were, but it, it doesn't have to be. It would be mainly a family type of uh, situation here. That would be traditional, just like it is in our culture as well. Okay, verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, 
they have no wine. Okay? And Jesus in verse 4 says to her, uh, woman, and by the way, that was not a disrespectful term back then. You'll find other places where Jesus talks to a, a male and he goes, man, what are you? And ask a question or makes a statement. It's just the way they did things back then. And it's uh, more akin to what we might say, uh, ma'am, something like that. What does your concern have to do with me? This is not really any of my business is what he is saying. He says, my hour has not yet come. Normally that refers to his death. And in verse five, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. You know, if we could get that into our, our heart to say whatever he says, just do it. Wouldn't that be great if we had that kind of a servant hearted attitude? Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, there uh, were set there six, let me back up. Now, there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. And Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water, well, they knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. He was probably the bridegroom's father or relative or something like that. And he said to him, every man in the beginning sets out the good wine. And then when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is high quality stuff. This beginning of an important word in the gospel of John signs, Jesus did in where he's going to emphasize this because it's to them, they would understand this as being weird and bizarre and why would you do this? But John wants us to know this Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. This is a step by step by step in maturing them to be the apostles that Jesus would need. This is step one. They watch this miracle. And after this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. And you'll notice that when it says they left to go to Capernaum, that the brothers of Jesus are with him too, further establishing the fact that this is probably some type of a family wedding because uh, all of the family went along with them. Now, Number one, when we talk about this miracle, let's acknowledge something we've already said. The setting was unimpressive. This is not the kind of thing that where it was staged. This is not the kind of thing where it's going to make a big splash or get any kind of media attention or anything like that at all. And um, it, it just happened to take place. This is one of those things where we would say it was a divine appointment, but to everybody else, it just looked like an average run-of-the-mill situation. No big deal. Just a coincidence 
that they're all there together. But we have to understand and we have to remember that there is really no such thing as a coincidence in the Christian life. Sometimes we like to think of God moving and God working in a big splash and a, a tremendous display of power and glory and um, emotion and uh, that type of thing and publicity even. And yet you'll find so many times in the Bible, things were done in a way that we never would have planned. We would say that would never work. And yet because God was in it, we're still talking about it all today. And, and that was the way the life of Jesus was in uh, so many instances. But not only that, other characters in the Bible too. Think about in our study on Sunday mornings of Moses in the book of Exodus. We would think that Moses could probably have done a whole lot more and had a lot more impact had he remained as a prince in Egypt in Pharaoh's household so he could do something about the problem of Hebrew slavery, right? But because Moses murdered that Egyptian and had to run for his life, it's not for another 40 years when he's an old man and he's tending sheep of all things. And remember, Egyptians despise shepherds, look down on shepherds. And Moses is probably thinking after that 40 years in the backside, the backside of the desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep, not even his sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. Boy, this is as low as it ever gets. And that's when he meets Jesus at the burning bush and is commissioned to go and set the people of Israel free. Well, that'll never work is probably what we would say. And yet it did. We still talk about Moses now. Think about Gideon in the book of Judges, that hero who defeated the... Um, Midianites, I believe it was, and uh, did it in a, in a very, very strange way. And when we first meet Gideon, he is threshing grain in a wine press. And you don't do that. You usually thresh grain out in the open so the wind will blow. And so when you beat the grain and then you throw it in the air, the chaff is blown away. But Gideon is scared. He's afraid. He's hiding in the wine press so that the uh, grain is not stolen by the enemy. And the angel comes and says, uh, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. Well, he doesn't look like it and he doesn't feel like it. But God is going to do something with this obscure man who says, what are you talking about here? I'm the least in my father's household and from a small tribe in Israel as well. What are you talking about? But how God sees us is different. There used to be a song that talks about David and said, where others see a shepherd boy, God may see a king. Well, that was the case in uh, Gideon's life. And you remember as the story goes on, Gideon's army is whittled down to just a few hundred and yet they happen to be victorious. God does great things in ordinary circumstances. Think about the vocation of the disciples fishermen, some of them, a tax collector, some of them we don't even know for sure. And yet they turn the world upside down. This is an amazing thing that God does. And this is what he is doing through um, Jesus, a wedding, not a massive public gathering in Cana, a town of 
little significance near Nazareth and Galilee, a part of Israel. We've already said all of this, poor and less educated and impoverished. And um, Judea, you know, that was the cool place to live. That was the impressive place. And that's where you would go to make a, a big splash, but uh, not going to happen here. And so, um, well, you just read all of that and think about it. And consider the fact that God does amazing things in ordinary circumstances. So if you're an ordinary common person, take heart. God does some of his greatest work through ordinary people like you and like me and in ordinary situations. Now, number two, the need opened a door. I wish we could learn that. Sometimes we want God to use us and... Um, we want God to use us like maybe, I don't know, raising somebody from the dead, uh, healing somebody who, you know, I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you prayed for somebody and an amputated leg grew back? I mean, we want those kind of things. And we want TV cameras and media exposure and, and tons of money and best-selling books and all of that. Well, I suppose God can do anything he wants to do with anybody he wants to do. But doesn't it strike you as strange that most of the time God uses just the ordinary people in ordinary situations to do his work? You can take all of the people that got saved in a Billy Graham crusade, for example, and it would pale in comparison to the number of people over the years who have been saved in a church service nobody ever heard of who were saved by a witnessing encounter from a person who's not even in the uh, professional ministry. They just told a friend about Jesus and led him to the Lord. We would probably be stunned at how much more effective one-on-one -on -one witnessing by ordinary church members is than by the super hired, holy professional men that preach in big crusades and things like that. This is just the way that God works. It gives him more glory because we don't attach it to a man. When it's got a name attached to it, we tend to glorify that man. But when it doesn't have a name, we glorify the Lord. I hope that makes sense. And so how did Jesus take care of this? And how did this first miracle take place? Because of a need. And if we could look around and see that sometimes God creates needs in the lives of maybe our enemies. And why does he allow that need to come about so that you and I might have an opportunity to minister to that need and minister to that person and meet that need for the glory of God? And it may be that somebody has a flat tire and you say, well, you know, what happened? Oh, I nothing. I just changed a flat tire. You may get to heaven and find out that that flat tire you changed for that person had an eternal impact. You may have talked to them and said something that planted a seed or watered a seed or maybe later brought in a harvest. When we look around and we see, I want to have an opportunity to speak to that neighbor who just doesn't want to talk about the things of the Lord. And then there's a death in the family and you take a a casserole over to them, and all of a sudden it turns into a gospel 
conversation or something like that. So many times, if we would look and see the needs, if we would help people who are in need, if we would minister to people who are in a tough situation, we might find ourselves with more opportunities to witness and be more fruitful than we ever could have imagined. Well, that's kind of what happened here. They run out of wine, which was an embarrassing situation for um, a Jew in that particular day because a wedding was a big, big deal. And weddings weren't just a time where you go to a church, sit there for an hour or so, make an appearance at the reception and then go about your own business. The wedding feast, are you ready for this? Would last up to seven days. That would make you not want to have daughters, wouldn't it? That'd be expensive. Seven days. And um, of course, let me back up because in those days, it was the bridegroom's family who paid for the wedding feast. So maybe you would want to have a daughter. I don't know. And so um, running out of wine before that was over, that is a problem. And so uh, Mary having this apparently an authoritative position at the wedding, she uh, says, whatever he says to you, do it. And it's interesting that Jesus appears to be saying, you know, hey, why are you talking to me about this? My hour has not yet come. And she ignores him like a mother would do, a Jewish mother would do with her son. And she just says to the servants, just do whatever he says. And then she leaves. It's kind of funny when you think about it. And so um, here they are in this humiliating situation. These people probably don't have a lot of extra money. They probably have planned the best that they can, and they've got as much wine as they could afford to get. And now they have run out. All that does is make you look poor and cheap and unprepared and all of that type of thing. And so it's interesting that Jesus would step in. Now, for the Jews, wine was a symbol of joy. In Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15, it says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man and oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Did you notice the thing there that they talked about? This Jewish psalmist talked about wine to gladden the heart. It's a symbol, a symbol of joy. And so uh, the joy at this wedding to run out of all of this um, was a problem. Now, make sure we understand that uh, the wine that they drank then different than the wine that we drink now in this respect. It was typical for the Jews to uh, take their wine and to dilute it with uh, water. In other words, they added wine to the water. And uh, why did they do that? Well, the water was uh, bad. Sometimes it was impure. And so the alcohol in the wine would kill germs. And not only that, but the water tasted terrible. And so they would put it in there and, you know, kind of, I guess, like a kind of a Kool-Aid type thing. It would make it uh, a whole lot better. And the Jews had a typical abhorrence for strong drink. And most of what we would drink today would be considered strong drink. And to drink in excess and to be uh, drunk was a particular problem. Proverbs 20, verse 1 
wine is a mocker, and strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And so uh, there was a way to uh, handle this in a way that was socially acceptable and a way that was not. Proverbs 21, 17, whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Why? Because alcoholics tend to drink away all of their money. Proverbs 23, 29 says, who has woe and who has sorrow? Who has strife and who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? In other words, they have a cut or a bruise and they go, I have no idea where that came from. And these are all references to being a blacked out drunk, don't they? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine and those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, And when it goes down smoothly, in the end, it will bite like a serpent and stings like an adder. I mean, there's a lot said about this in a negative way in there. It's not all positive. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for others to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. In other words, Solomon is saying the last thing you want is a king who's going to make laws and execute judgment, punish criminals and all the things that kings would do back then and have him to be buzzed, to have him to be not thinking clearly. It's not a smart thing to do, in other words. So whatever you uh, think about alcohol and whatever you think about wine and everything, put all of it together and make sure that you uh, understand all of this and what the Bible is really saying. It's not just, you know, go have a drink, drink whatever you want, as much as you want or anything. That's clearly, clearly, clearly not true. And in fact, what the Jews would drink would have very, very little alcoholic content in it if they used it normally and properly in their time and in their way. And of course, we don't have the problem with the bad water or anything like that. So you're probably better off just stay away from it. Now, when you uh, think about all of this and what is going on at the wedding, you notice that Jesus is not unwilling to perform the miracle, but he did want to make it clear that um, uh, he was not acting on Mary's agenda but he was acting on his father's. His hour refers to his sacrificial death, and he's simply saying, nothing is going to keep me from doing what the father sent me to do. I'm not here to make weddings better. I'm not here as my main purpose to even heal sick people or to do any of those things. He was making a beeline for the cross, and he kept that on his mind, and he wanted his mother to remember why he came. He's not just a trickster or a magician or anything like that at all. He's a a sacrificial lamb of God that's going to be offered for our sin. Okay. Number three, the resources were unlikely, but they were present. 
You know, there are so many times, just as we said earlier, God uses ordinary people in ordinary situations in order to get his work done. And we, we forget that. We think it's got to be something else. Well, here's another thing to consider. Many times it's not only an ordinary situation and you an ordinary person being there, but ordinary stuff that he uses, ordinary things, just normal things, not anything that is necessarily spiritual, nothing that's necessarily flashy or expensive or religious, just the little things. And it's amazing how often God uses the little ordinary mundane things, two people talking about the weather, and then somebody complains about it being too hot, and then the other person talks about how God is a creator of all things, and that leads into a conversation about salvation in Christ. Just an ordinary conversation. Or how many times maybe it is that you don't fix a five-star gourmet meal for somebody, you just bake a simple cake, a sheet cake maybe, take it over to somebody's house and they're moved by your kindness and it turns into a relationship builder so that you are able to talk about Jesus and share the gospel. Maybe you cut somebody's backyard when they're out of town, you cut their grass and they come back and they say, thank you for that. And then why did you do that? And it turns into something um, very special. Many times the resources, <coughs> excuse me, are already there. And there just happened to be six water pots there. Not a big deal. They're water pots of stone. They're not china. They're not fine uh, pottery or anything like that. But they are there according to the manner of the purification of the Jews. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, it was an old, ordinary stone pot that was set outside Dogs would drink out of it, probably. People would walk by and they just saw it as just a stone pot, nothing fancy. But they had the water, a lot of water in them, because they would take the water out of that and they would wash their hands. And they would also take water out of it, the servants would, and wash the feet of guests. So these are just pots that are nothing special. In fact, they're kind of a dishonorable type pot. And that's what Jesus said. They just happened to be there. What a coincidence, huh? Praise chance, I guess we would say. And yet they were there for a purpose. Common, ordinary things. There's nothing really special about the water. The water smelled bad and had impurities in it in those days. And the stone pots, just no big deal. And yet that's what Jesus chose to use. Now, he didn't have to but that's what he has chosen to use. And if we would look around in our life and we would just see that the ordinary things, ordinary people in ordinary situations can use ordinary things for the glory of God. God can do miraculous things through the ordinary. And so he says, draw it out, fill it with water. Now draw it out, take it to the master of the feast. And um, boy, amazing what happened there? The water turns into wine. The master of the feast has no idea, but he compliments it. But the servants knew. Can you imagine the stir and the talking? And again, Jesus doesn't really make a big deal out of this with the master of the feast, but with the servants. Isn't that amazing? Just like when he was born. Who was it that first came to see him? Not the uh, wise men. They didn't come till later. Not Pharisees and Sadducees or anything like that. Shepherds of all things. It's like the Lord does everything backwards 
because he wants to have glory brought unto his name. So these pots of stone are used with ordinary water, and yet he turns them into wine, and the servants are the ones who are talking. They know what is going on. And so it was already there. So don't uh, discount the ordinary situations and the ordinary things and your ordinary talents and ordinary conversations. There's probably more there for God to use than you really even realize. Isn't that neat? Number four, Jesus on display here because it says that the master of the feast tasted it. You remember that? And he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And so the master of the feast brags about the wine to the uh, uh, bridegroom. And uh, you can imagine everything that is going on. And you can imagine all of the talk. And so we find here that Jesus on display, he does something that only God can do. You can't turn water into wine. I can't turn water into wine. We could all get together as a church and pray for hours or days or even years. We could fast and pray. We could do all kinds of stuff, but we can't make that miracle happen. Only the Lord can do that. And I'm convinced that the Lord wants to do things in ordinary people's lives using ordinary means and ordinary things to do things that only he can do. And that way he receives the glory for it. And so he brought uh, joy out of shame and uh, humiliation. And the stone pots symbolize us and our inability and helplessness. There wasn't anything special about the pots. There wasn't anything that the pots could do about the water that was in them or anything like that. The water couldn't do anything for itself. This is a supernatural work of God. Think about if we're the stone pots, the water is the word of God and the gospel and the wine is the joy of salvation and the joy of the Holy Spirit that comes from a new life. So you see in this what Jesus came to do. He's giving a picture of his sacrifice, taking us and pouring his water of the word and the gospel into us. And then something amazing happens There is the joy of the Lord and salvation and we become a blessing to the Lord and to other people and we have the joy of the Holy Spirit symbolized by the wine because something is brand new in that old stone pot. And here I am, I get saved and I don't look any different. I just look like old Greg and you still look like old you. But something's different inside when the water of the word was poured inside of you. Have you ever seen anybody get saved and be glum? Have you ever seen anybody get saved and be sad? No, they are bubbling over and they're filled with joy. And that's what this turning the water into wine is a picture of. You're the stone pot. The water is the gospel and the word of God. And the wine is the joy that comes out of us when we are born again. So the Bible says in conclusion, verse 11, this beginning, this is the beginning of signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. That's really what it was all about. That's what it's all about when you and I witness to somebody. That's what it's all about when you and I get saved. It glorifies God in ordinary situations. And his disciples believed in him because 
Whatever God does through us has impact on other people. That's why our lives are so important that we live them for the glory of God. And after that, what did he do? Call the newspapers? Get on TV? Of course, I'm being facetious, but no. He goes down to Capernaum, goes down with him, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. No big deal. Just a band of people heading to another obscure town. And what happened? They didn't stay there many days. In other words, Jesus didn't brag about this. He didn't talk about this. He just let it happen. Kind of like a farmer when he plants the seeds in the ground. He doesn't go out and brag about that. That's just what he's supposed to do. And he doesn't run a combine over it the next day because it hadn't had time to grow. He just leaves it alone leaves it alone and lets it grow. And there are a lot of things in life that we do and we do it for the glory of God, just ordinary everyday stuff. And what are we supposed to do about it? Just leave it alone and let God do his work in it. And then one of these days we'll see a harvest and everybody will be surprised, even you probably. But it'll be for the glory of God and it'll be clearly seen as the work of God, not the work of man. So a few insights from the turning of water into wine at Cana of Galilee at a wedding feast. I hope that blesses you and encourages you and uh, that the Lord will anoint you as you teach this to your class. And for those of you who are tuning in to keep up with Sunday School, God bless you for doing that. I really appreciate it. And we'll look forward to seeing you very soon, seeing you in church and uh, maybe seeing you again by video or audio, as the case may be. And may the Lord bless you. I love you, and I'm thankful for you. And um, again, thank you for tuning in.